0: This week on the show, we have an article about updating the GCC in Net Ada Port in Package Source NetBSD, the Advanced BSD Thoughts second part from last week, FreeBSD from a NetBSD's user perspective, FPGA programming and Dragonfly BSD, Chimera Linux, EuroBSDCon schedule of 2021, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 413, BSD slash Linux Chimera, recorded on the 14th of July 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now to get the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode with fresh news from the BSD space and this first item reads updating GCC GNAT slash ADA or ADA in package source NetBSD. So this might sound complicated at first, uh, but it reads like this. Never trust package source when it says that it is installing the package. Quote by Fernando Oleo Blanco. Okay, so the abstract here. This subproject or this project entry is meant to document my findings about getting a modern version of GCC, in this case GCC 10, running on NetBSD with ADA support, the programming language. Okay. The author would like to acknowledge the amazing help of Jay Patelani, the continuous comments package source IRC community, and the help of the ADA community with both Telegram and IRC. Oh, yeah. And finally, more important, John Marino, or Jay Marino, I guess that's John, who created the original GCC package that supports ADA, allowed this project to take place the way it did. OK, so current state-of-the-art. source currently offers two versions of GCC which support ADA. These are GCC 5-AUX and GCC 6-AUX. I guess that's auxiliary. Uh, both of them were created by Jay Marino as part of the Aurora project, which aimed to get ADA support in OSs that GCC supports, but had no official GCC ADA port. Okay. Recently, after PackageSource 2021 quarter 1 was released, PackageSource's infrastructure regarding ADA support was updated to use GCC6 AUX when building anything ADA. It was also announced that GCC10 would be the last version of GCC that would not require a a C++11 compiler, which bumps the requirements to build it. Uh, while this change of requirements for GCC is un- inconsequential, it's a good reason to try and get a more updated version of GCC that officially supports ADA in Package Source. And he was also informed in the Package Source IRC channel that GCC 10 was a good starting point since it requires fewer patches to run on NetBSD and other platforms supported by Package Source. Then there's a section about getting it to compile. Uh... So long story short, package source allows the user to select which languages TCC will support before the building process starts by changing the options of the package. And they initially added ADA to langs plus equals, which should be enough uh, to get it running, and even modified in the options file to try to make the changes as upstream friendly as possible. That option alone did not work. They added ADA to the use underscore languages directive in the options file. However, package source does not support use underscore languages as part of the options. So after some wasted hours, <laughs> wasted with AI, <laughs> wasted hours, of course, wondering why uh, ADA was not getting selected and added the ADA keyword to boot both use language and lang directly in the make file. Okay, there's a larger patch provided for the make file. Uh, the patch simply copies the freeBSD x86 underscore 64 entry and changes the OS detection to netBSD. After another long compilation process, GCC with ADA support finally compiled. But did it work? I created copy-pasted ADA's Hello World example, compiled, ran it, and got no warning. Error and a very nice Hello World output in the console. Then there's further discussions um, about final findings up until uh, 27th of May this year. So after taking a look at the generated logs from ACATS, what's ACATS again?
1: I think it's uh, an automated test system.
0: Oh, right, yeah. Um, so that it was clear that the issue was that the linker could not find the function pthread underscore yield present in the FreeBSD version of the s osinte probably internals, .ads file, uh, which is not a standard pthread function and that BSD does not support it. Ah, okay, that's why. Okay, and they apparently got it working. Uh, there's further down, further work, uh, a.k.a. to-do. After taking a look at the Duraco compiler and GCC6.0, aux files, especially the patches, the clock primitives, and potentially some other synchronization code of the RTS has to be adapted or tweaked to work on NetBSD. These patches provide great guidance, and they expect to use them to finally get ADA support in package source and NetBSD. In the end, the idea is to have a set of files and an entire, such as the makefile.rts system, officially added in upstream GCC so that support would be official and be less of a burden to downstream, in this case, package source. For the time being, uh, they find themselves with no time to work on this port anymore and will not be able to take part of any of other hobbies up until early September if everything goes well. Ah, There's some edit history and footnotes there. Okay. Yeah, it's it's good to see some behind-the-scenes insights like how... uh, like the the work involved that porters have to do to make things work, and uh, we just run make install or package install, and sometimes we don't see what
1: uh, yeah of we work don't realize how much work people have done <laughs> to make sure that you can just do that. Mm. Uh, so next we have a follow up on that advanced BSD uh, idea for a kind of a nonprofit project to support the BSDs from last uh, week. Yeah. So yeah, so we talked about that last week, but there's a follow up that we can talk about this week. In the previous article, provided an introduction to the concept for advanced uh, the advanced BSD project uh, by providing some background uh, as well as discussing the why. And this article instead will focus on what. Uh, so, will it be about shared services or virtualization? Another general question is uh, is what makes more sense to focus on some form of virtualization, either fully fledged VMs or doing paravirtualization like VMware or like uh, FreeBSD jails with or without VNet or rather providing some kind of shared services uh, like web hosts used to be, where there would just be one OS and you'd have like a hundred different people's websites running on it. Uh, There certainly is a need for both of these. And while I'm certain that the vast majority of VST people would be perfectly capable of renting a VM and doing all the things they need themselves, I'm not sure if everybody actually wants to do that. I can definitely see the case for a lot of people would prefer to have someone else manage the OS for them rather than, uh, you know, having a VM and being responsible for updating the OS themselves. Um, and that might be an interesting competitive advantage here. Anyway, um, go on thinking about what uh, my use case would be, the result is likely a mixture of both. If by accident, uh, the shared services is built upon exactly the software components that I prefer, and B, there was a nice interface provided the level of control that I do need. Uh, I mean, possibly see somebody else kept the whole thing nicely up to date. Exactly like I was saying. I wouldn't say no. If, however, some services are provided by something that I loathe, let's say XM or (laughs) SendMail, then I'd probably rather do it myself. (laughs) But, you know, in the end, if if you have a a nice control panel or whatever to manage or an API to manage the email addresses, uh, you know, create mailboxes and forwarders and control it, then in the end... I probably don't care what's actually running underneath. Anyway, it so says, depending on what preferences people have, the focus of the project might go either way. Personally, I'd like to see some high quality shared services at some point, but that doesn't necessarily mean the project uh, has to start with that. So then it comes down to the question of what services uh, are people interested in? Uh, it may look like a logical decision to start with domains. For practical reasons, I'd rather stay away from that as uh, from being. However, here's why domain business is hard. The profit margins are uh, very low even for the big players Uh, like if you want to be a fully accredited registrar that's a big upfront investment Uh, and if you're just a reseller then that eats into the margins even more and you need to have a lot of domains in your portfolio to get anything near a decent price before that you're losing money if you want uh, to compete with the established players in addition uh, to that it's not exactly simple to properly automate things like domain transfers that can keep people occupied otherwise uh, considerations like this don't make the field particularly attractive. Uh, DNS is possible, uh, you know, much better field to start with, provided that we can get at least one person on board who's experienced with doing advanced DNS things like DNSSEC and Dane. Uh, the initial time invested in proper configuration of the name servers is not to be neglected, but much more on the doable side consider- compared to you know, trying to run a domain registrar. And since for DNS you always have at least two servers, it'd be a great way to make sure that we use different PSDs for each of the primary servers. Plain web hosting would certainly be the easiest thing to start with. However, we definitely want to support TLS and Let's Encrypt and so on, and supporting wildcard certs for domains requires DNS uh, anyway, so it makes sense to have those together. Also, intermediate hosting is a bit more complex already. A lot of people will still want to do something like PHP, uh, which makes sense, but Python gets more complicated because, you know, each app runs separately. It's, it's not, it doesn't do multi-tenancy the same way that PHP does, where each script is kind of self-contained. With Python, you end up having the web server proxying to an already running Python uh, service. Um, others still want Perl and then, you know, throw in things like mod security and friends, and suddenly it gets much more complicated very quickly. Plus, you know, there's always the argument of what web server to use. Uh, will it be OpenBSDs, HTTP, Uh, Do we need Lighty, Nginx, or do people still want Apache? And then, of course, email is a huge topic. I mean, to, to, you know, investigate anti-spam and anti-virus software and making sure that, you know, the mail that's sent through their service is uh, A, not spam, but B, also delivered, right? You want to make sure that it doesn't end up getting blocked or just not accepted. And to do that, you have to make sure that you're not uh, emitting spam, but you also have privacy concerns about, you know, even if people are doing TLS uh, encrypted transfer for their mail, if they're sending it to this service and that service is sending it on, that means that they have access to the plain text and it gets interesting. So anyway, uh, you know, you need to build up reputation. You have IPs uh, that you control and need to have DNS for the MX records and SPF and all that. Uh, another possibility would be offering more complete products, something like uh, Gitea instances, or XMPP chat servers, or Sogo Groupware, or Jitsi video chat, and that kind of thing. This only makes sense if we find out that you know, by chance, there's a lot of people interested in one particular thing. In general, on the net, I'd say WordPress would be a sure bet. But my guess is that many people might be more interested in something like Hugo or Jekyll and the like of that. Uh, and once you have those, then it's you know, you're just doing file, plain file hosting, and you don't need any dynamic things. And there's advantages to that too. Each of these topics could lead to more and more discussion, and further is actually a real group of people coming together to make advanced BSD, then it gets more interesting. So then uh, looking at involving neighbors and others, while I have no doubt that the BSD community is big enough for such a project to succeed, it might still make sense to connect with some other communities that also have niches, but are nevertheless important and interesting. One option, obviously, is uh, something like Illumos, which has a bunch of people that were very friendly with and and might fit in with this as well. While I certainly like uh, the focus to remain on BSD, I'd be open to letting, uh, you know, there's lots of people that have fond memories of Solaris and might just want to be able to have a little shell on a Solaris machine or whatever. So eventually supporting Illumos too, if uh, there are people from the Illumos side that are interested and capable of joining in, uh, that wouldn't be a bad thing. We also even need to give all the the revenue generated from the Illumos users back to that community as well. Uh, It wouldn't be a loss for us since uh, customers who want... uh, wouldn't have to... What? (laughs) Ah, since customers who want that won't have uh, to be booked on, you know, a BSD jail or whatever. The author here also notes that they're personally interested in the Gemini project, uh, which I think is the... It's like reviving Gopher or something, right? Yeah. It's more like a... A reversion to the old text based internet where everything is text and you can just read it and you don't need a web browser that needs gigabytes of memory to draw a web page. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah it's a lightweight uh, web protocol.
1: And other efforts for the so called small internet. It's not an incredibly huge community yet, but due to the nature, it's a pretty technically versed one uh, and it might make a, a good fit along with uh, the BSD people. Uh, running a Gemini server, maintaining a site in the Gemini space. In addition to the web that informs about advanced BSE and the services provided is really not much of a hassle. It might well get the project some wider recognition. However, and if you've got the Gemini server anyway, we might consider offering Gemini hosting as a thing that you get as part of the service. It's very low on resources and Gemini people would get another free hosting service while we'd benefit from spreading the word and so on. <clears throat> if there's enough interest regarding Gemini in the future, we could do that. Another interesting example might be the Power Platform, uh, which is trying to be more open source hardware. It has a much lower market share than AMD64 or even the ARM64 now, uh, but there are some people who really like it. Hosting on ARM is nothing too exciting anymore these days, but hosting it on Power certainly is. Uh, So we might consider a platform diversity as another field that people can select to fund with their uh, donations. I can imagine that some people who are not necessarily into BSD but are into Power9 might be interested in something like that as well. So hosting on some BSD running on Power would certainly be experimental for some time to come, but enthusiasts probably wouldn't mind too much. It would be a great chance for the BSD operating systems to improve support for that architecture and a nice opportunity to show Power in action. Uh, So another win-win situation. And so then they talk a little bit about getting started you know, figuring out where the interests are and which things it makes sense to do first, uh, then determining what means of communication will work best for people. Is that a subreddit, a mailing list, IRC, a web forum or something else? Starting to build the early community and collecting ideas and thoughts and discussions, and then decide on some kind of project governance system and examples and get a team together, then try to reach some kind of consensus on what the project actually wants to do in the short term and the, the middle term then asking people interested about their areas of proficiency and figuring out, you know, what we have the capabilities to do within the team. And then beyond that, you know, it's probably a little early to be deciding what we're doing there. And I figured out some of the requirements, you know, they need people uh, to install machines and keep them up to date. They all need uh, a web developer to actually build some of the interfaces to this stuff, the DevOps people to to keep the stuff running and to Get the automation in shape, since if you're doing this for a lot of people, with a small group of people, you need to do it with as little human effort as possible uh, so that it can scale, and then supporters to actually start buying the service and and making it work so that it can fund the BST projects. And then there's some more about figuring out a mascot or something and and the rest of the identity of that project. Uh, and the next steps that are looking at, uh, I'm hoping that this provides some food for thought and that will evoke more discussion. And uh, we can get people that are interested together and start talking about it more and figuring out what to do next. Yep. Uh, and they also note that uh, they're planning their next article on the blog here to be about Poudreur for building packages.
0: Ah, okay. So if that's out, we can probably grab it and mention it in a future episode.
1: Yeah, and It's so not yeah. out today, but probably will be by time people are watching this. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely provide comments and uh, feedback on those two articles now that they're both together on the blog. Um, If this catches on, then definitely reach out if you want to help. In our news roundup this week, we have FreeBSD from a NetBSD user perspective. So a look from the outside in, depending on where you stand. (laughs) So uh, here we go. Um, I've been a NetBSD developer for three years, and it's been my primary operating system for a long time, too. On everything. Routers, laptops, Raspberry Pis, PowerPC, Mac minis, Vortex 86, embedded boards, and servers. I've recently been using FreeBSD a lot at work. We have a lot of servers and embedded boards running it. And I was given the option of installing anything I wanted on my workstation. I chose FreeBSD to maintain a separation of BSDs between my work and home life. Not bad. Uh, I thought I'd write a little bit about some differences that stand out to me. Since everyone that knows me well knows that I typically use cases like web hosting aren't really my jam. And I'm more of an embedded audio and graphics person. Maybe I can offer a more uncommon perspective. OK, and he divides it up into various uh, sections. First one is packages. Packaging for FreeBSD ports is very straightforward, coming from a NetBSD package source background. And I imagine it's the same in the other direction. Package source was forked from FreeBSD ports a few decades ago and runs on many more operating systems. So the developers have to be much more careful about portability. The most obvious difference when you install them right away is that NetBSD defaults to installing third-party software to use a slash package, and FreeBSD defaults to user local. On NETBSD, I use user local for, li- for files that I install system-wide by means other than the packaging system on servers, routers, and so on. I keep documentation on what the machine does in user slash local slash man. I suppose I could use slash opt for this on FreeBSD, but most installation script defaults to user local. Uh, so for managing binary packages, FreeBSD seems to always give you the high-level package tool by default, which is comparable to package in for package source. However, NetBSD by default comes with the much more rustic package underscore add and package in as optional for those who want it.
1: Yeah, um, there's so FreeBSD has some support for changing dollar prefix to, from user local to, say, user package. And I know that's one of the tests that happens to make sure that that works on ports and so on. But I don't know how it works with package by default. And like, if by just putting something in a config file, you could easily have everything that's a package go to user package instead. Mm. I don't know.
0: There's probably a way. Then there's about the init system. PreBSD's init system is a port of NetBSD's init system, so it's interesting to see what's different. On NetBSD, init files are loaded from a single directory, slash etc, slash rc.d. Since package source is not allowed to touch files outside its installation prefix, if you want to use init files from packages, you have to either copy them from $PREFIX/share/examples/rc.d or make a symlink. On FreeBSD, theres user is /usr/local/etc/rc.d. It's also a search path that the init system uses, so you can immediately run init scripts installed by a package. Presumably, only if you didn't change the default installation prefix. Yeah. Uh, this is probably more natural for users coming from Linux. Okay. Then, hardware and drivers. I'm not going to whine about missing drivers, etc. A serious is the user knows to check the hardware before buying it and keeps a stack of USB network adapters around in case of emergencies. Seriously, though, I'm more interested in difference in how hardware support is handled. Uh, there's a note about uh, webcams and Webcam D. Uh, the eternal laptop cameras, there's a note here that those are nearly always USB. Something that quite shocked him was how differently webcam support is handled. In NetBSD, there's a generic driver for all USB video devices built into the default kernel. This implemented an API that's somewhat compatible with video for Linux. When the driver detects your webcam, it will automatically create slash dev slash video zero, which can be recorded for the FFmpeg and streamed from Firefox. Uh, the only meeting software that I've tested extensively on NetBSD is Jitsi Meet, it works perfectly in Firefox. Other video conferencing web tools often require you to use Chrome, which hasn't been ported to NetBSD. The eternally not upstream full-BSD patch set is huge. Ah, I'm told that Zoom works if you configure Firefox with a fake user agent. In FreeBSD, it seems you first have to install WebcamD, an application which is a port of Linux USB device drivers into user space on FreeBSD. You configure it to attach a specific generic USB device, which is exposed by the kernel to user space, like ugen 0.6 after loading the queues module. And I'm not sure if there are specific advantages to doing it this way. Right now I'm just don't using any I'm not using any webcams during meetings. I don't think anyone minds. Okay, so it's I know Zoom owned.
1: works with Firefox on FreeBSD, even with screen sharing. It's been quite nice.
0: Yeah. Then there's a section about GPU drivers and modules. Uh, on FreeBSD, you have to explicitly install and load graphics drivers, while on NetBSD, they're baked into the default kernel and will automatically be loaded. FreeBSD has a proprietary driver for NVIDIA GPUs, which takes some extra care to configure, while on NetBSD, the open-source driver Nouveau is used instead. Okay, And then there's a section about jails, VMs, and change routes. Another one about multicast DNS and storage. The one about storage is small enough to read. I
1: use that. As- um, so for the one about graphics drivers, they're talking about the the fact that they're built in on NetBSD and how that has advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Um, on FreeBSD, the devmatch stuff should mean that at some point we'll be able to auto-load the driver when it's there. Yeah, so it's similar. Um, so if if it detects the PCI ID of of a device that's supported, it will automatically load it, um, and it will become less of a faff to set up over time. Mm.
0: Yeah, especially for new users. Um, In the storage section, I use ZFS on both and haven't had a problem with it on either. The NetBSD bootloader doesn't handle ZFS natively, so I have a small FFS root partition and then layer ZFS on top of it. Having a small FFS root for recovery is probably a good thing in my case because I keep building new kernels, forgetting to build the ZFS module Ah, because modules aren't used much on NetBSD. Then wondering why slash home is missing on next boot. Yeah, okay. I'm missing kind of a uh, like a summary of all this at the end of the article.
1: Yeah, uh, well, they're still using FreeBSD, mm-hmm. and there are just some things they notice that are different.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's always good to see what uh, people switching to BSDs uh, look for, or what their use cases are, and what they kind of miss, and what they find new and refreshing. Very nice. Uh, then we have uh, FPGA programming and Dragonfly BSD. This is on Mastodon, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yeah, so this seems to
1: be a uh, longer uh, thread, conversation thread. Uh, so it says they uh, they've apparently ported Yosys and Next PNR, and uh, the, the, the ports for those have been updated. Open FPGA loader has been built, although CMake traditionally not find the library pass. The firmware can only be flashed from root, uh, but whatever. But they have a fully open FBGA tool chain working under dragonfly bsd the most important thing for me is uh was to set the open collector mode for I/O reliability uh that was turned out to be deadly important i wish this wasn't just a twitter thread and had a little more detail but i say that the new delta should be taken from the uh, new quarterly freebsd ports branch and then and that'll get pulled in so it looks like some of the stuff is going upstream to make it uh easier and so that it won't require patches.
0: Okay, and they will probably have a, a, a more fully um, a mention on Dragonfly Digest
1: when that Then we have an interesting thing I saw come up on IRC somewhere, and I was slightly confused at first, but that was my own... In my head, <laughs> GNU and GPL go together. Yeah. Uh, and I hadn't considered that there are reasons... Other than the GPL, why you might not want GNU stuff in your operating system. Uh, So here we have Chimera Linux, a Linux distribution based on FreeBSD's user land at LLVM. Uh So this project is currently heavily work in progress. It does not yet include a kernel or an init system. And the packaging is very rough. Both of the build system and the templates themselves are in a state of flux. But the goal here is Chimera will be a Linux distribution... With the following goals first being built entirely with llvm rather than gcc i have no gnu components in the base system so it won't use gnu core utils so you know ls cp less grep all that kind of stuff will be the freebsd versions rather than the gnu versions okay to be uh, binary package based and have a fast source build system to be bootstrapable and to be portable so chimera uses llvm and clang as its system tool chain this is used to build all the core components of the system. There's currently no GCC in the source repository at all. The compiler-rt component uh, is used as the core runtime, and libc++ is used as the C++ library. They say there are no GNU components at all uh, in the base system, except currently uh, they use GNU make, used to build the components, and endcurses. The rest of the lane comes from FreeBSD, so not BusyBox, but the real FreeBSD stuff and they're using uh, Musel as the libc rather than uh, GNU libc. Uh, Chimera has a completely new source packaging system that was not written in shell as as is conventional, but rather is a Python scripting uh, tool. This reduces the build system overhead to a minimum as well as making it uh, introspectable and so on. The builds are always uh, containerized uh, with a minimal Chimera system being used as the build environment for every package. This system is sandboxed using bubble wrap and runs uh, completely unprivileged. Uh, the binary packaging system used is APK Tools, uh, originally from Alpine Linux. It was chosen because of its speed and ease of integration. Uh, the system is bootstrapable, so it can build itself. Uh, you can use any musl based distribution as the initial system, as long as it has a few required components uh, to get the build up and going. After that, Chimera uses a three stage bootstrap path with stage 0 building all the components needed to assemble the build container, stage 1 rebuilding itself using components from stage 0, and stage 2 rebuilding itself using components from stage 1, and so on. This is done to ensure that the final system is not influenced at all by the initial hosting system. Uh, And as portable, Chimera currently targets the PowerPC 64 Little Endian, arc 64 or ARM64, and x86-64 architectures. It should, however, be easily portable to any architecture that's supported by LLVM Clang and has components like Compiler RT and libunwind, and is supported by Musl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems some people want to build uh, a Linux kind of sans the, the GNU project. Uh, yeah. and it's uh, obvious leadership problems and so on.
0: Oh, maybe there's a, a Finnish student. Uh... <laughs> i'm currently waiting just to write the kernel parts
1: <laughs> maybe but you know that's interesting seems like if you're replacing everything except for the kernel with freebsd why not just just replace the kernel too yeah go the whole the whole way but i'm guessing that comes down to applications i might, I don't i think musil is fairly well supported and i think most applications can handle musil instead of lib, uh, glibc but I don't know how, like, how widely used that is, or like, you know, what application problems you would run into on something like Camera Linux versus trying to run it just on vanilla FreeBSD. But this is interesting, and, and you know, if it leads to more applications being able to handle a, a FreeBSD user land, that's a good thing. So.
0: Yeah, if that provides some more compatibility between the two systems, then yeah, definitely worth the effort. All right, and if you're missing the BSD conferences, just as we do, there is a little light on the horizon with the virtual EuroBSDCon 2021, and the program has been released in the schedule. So we should look at that a little bit. So EuroBSDCon starts on September 17th till 19th, and is completely virtual. Ah, yes, here we go. Day one starts with a social event and test your system event at 1900.
1: That's... Yeah, I think that's a good idea to help people work out any issues of, A, being able to watch the stream, but also being able to contribute. Uh, whether that's because they're a speaker or, uh, you know, I expect those speakers will have worked it out ahead of time. But, you know, if you can get your audio working properly, it'll make it easier to ask questions and, then, you know, things like that when we have those sessions. Uh,
0: then on day two the Saturday, they have the opening and keynote. And then there's three tracks. Is that three tracks? or Two. Two and
1: um yeah let's go over so first them. they'll have uh debugging packages in open bsd by mark espy and uh opposite gaming on ghost bsd by sophie uh and then after a, a break they'll have working with uh star bsd ports uh opposite ghost bsd as a game winner for daily use and uh, then they will have a lunch break uh after that uh Rick Floiter will present opening, or sorry, porting an OpenBSD daemon and its security concepts from C to Rust, which I'm sure lots of people will be interested in, opposite uh, FreeBSD networking in virtualized hosting, 2021 and beyond by Patrick Hens... Uh, Hausen? Hausen. yeah. How do you pronounce it? Hausen. <clears throat> okay. And then uh, again, a break. Then uh, in the first track, on-demand package building in the cloud, opposite using Ceph on FreeBSD. Uh, and then... Porting GNOME to NetBSD, and uh, I'm running a panel on building and running a BSD home lab. Ah, yes. Great. It's been uh, a long time since the last one of those, and it'll be fun. Uh, And then there's a talk about porting Chromium to FreeBSD, and then Michael W. Lucas will be talking about uh, SNMP is still alive. (laughs) Ah, yes. And then closing out the day, there's the lessons from the call for testing lab and uh, the... Firmware update port process for the BSDs. So, updating the firmware updating tool to all the BSDs, which I think will be quite interesting. Ah, cool.
0: And it's nice that they integrated uh, the US or the other time zones, like Canada and the US as well, in the late. Yes, uh,
1: we got the <laughs> North American speakers late in the day so that they don't have to get up stupid early. Yeah. <laughs> and by the same token, on Sunday at stupid early o'clock, uh, we have the Asian presenters. Oh, yes. Uh, so there's log store, a log structured user level geom layer. Uh, well, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I probably will not be awake for it, but I will watch it on YouTube. The after. recordings <laughs> will be there. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then we have highly or high, yeah, highly available wins with OpenBSD opposite FreeBSD. AR64 virtual machines are boring. Uh, then a break. Then we have uh, Renee presenting Port Manager behind the scenes, about how the FreeBSD team that manages the ports tree works. Uh, And then auto-installing BSD systems. Then uh, lunchtime, that'll be sad because it won't be actual lunchtime. The the lunches are always good. It it won't be getting to sit around with people and eat. Yeah, Uh, and getting the good
0: food there from the country.
1: But uh, after the lunch break, there's uh, carrier-grade L2BSA gateways with NetGraph. Uh, and Michael W. Luke is talking about TLS in 2021. Ah. Then after another break, Tom Jones will present using dummy net to explore space with quick. And then uh, Alexander Chernikov will be talking about the routing stack changes in FreeBSD 13. Uh, he did a lot of work. That is going to be very interesting. Putting that up against Tom was evil. <laughs> that, yeah, I think it had to do with time zones. Uh, then after another break uh, is... Simplifying licensing using the reuse framework and serving Netflix video at 400 gigabits per second using FreeBSD. Uh, and then DNS Treasure Hunt with uh, Jan Piet Menz uh, and an overview of scheduling in the FreeBSD kernel uh, with Kirk McKusick. And then uh, to round things out, Smart, a new tool from Chuck Tufley, a permissively licensed alternative to SmartCTL. Uh, that also has, you know, Libzo support, so you can get JSON output and so on. Because uh, if you've ever tried to use Smart CTL and, you know, grab that data and put it in your, your metric system, you've found it's really annoying to read. Mm-hmm. And it was meant for humans, not for computers. Uh, well, Smart CTL or Smart uh, provides BSD license tool that gives you all the raw data in a way you can actually digest uh, as well. And with a handy shell script wrapper, if you want a human readable version. And then finally, uh, the new NetBSD entropy subsystem from Taylor Campbell. And then some kind of grand finale at the end. Ooh, wow, exciting. So yeah, there's definitely something in there for everyone
0: networking and uh, various subsystem developments, new features. Yep.
1: Uh, and of course, I think the most interesting bit will probably be the social event on the end of uh, Saturday night. Yeah, getting together with. And mostly because that won't be very late for me. So. It won't hurt me to stay up for it. <laughs> yeah,
0: and that's the Europeans. You...
1: On the other hand, you know, it starts at seven o'clock, but that's only like noon for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, what is that? That makes it awfully early in the morning for me. But when my talk is, but that'll do.
0: Yeah, it will work somehow. I'm, I'm yep. fairly sure they will. Uh, I'm up by then anyway. anyway, and i and I'm happy that they make it at least virtual this year. That since last year everything uh, couldn't be. Uh, organized in the way they wanted. Yep. And I'm f- f- uh, I know that they were far ahead in the organization already, so they had to cut things short now. But now they have this form, and
1: luckily we will see uh, the family, the BSD family again, at least in video form. So this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, online backups for the truly paranoid. So head over to tarsnapcom BSD Now and uh, click that big green start using Tarsnap Now button and get an account. And then put some money in it, $5 or so will get you started. Uh, and then just install the program. Uh, it's available from the package manager for almost every operating system. You just package install tar-snap. Uh, And then with its very TAR-like command line, you just say, you know, I want to create an archive called this, and uh, here's the files I want to put in it. It will gather up that data, segment, and deduplicate it. Uh, compare it to what's already been uploaded uh, to the cloud uh, and avoid uploading any data that doesn't need to be uploaded, then compressing what's left and making as small as possible, then encrypt and sign it and upload it to the cloud. The encryption key only ever lives on your machine, so it's your responsibility to back it up, but it means that no one can read your backups without that key, so as long as you still have the key you'll be able to restore, and as long as nobody else has a key, nobody else will. Uh, and everything's encrypted and signed, so that when you go to restore a backup, the signature will help you ensure that nothing uh, was modified in your backup, and then uh, you can decrypt it and have all your files back, but know that no one else could have read your files because no one else has your key. Yep. And because it's pay-as-you-go, uh, there's no surprise bills. You put money in your account... And it, you get debited out of that for your usage, and it means that uh, you never get a surprise bill. You always know how much you're spending, uh, and you know if you use it all up, you have to put more money in. But you don't get a surprise bill.
0: Yeah, they let you know when your account's running low, and so you can recharge in time.
1: Yeah, and you can you know delete backups before you run up a, a large credit card bill for no <laughs>
0: That also helps because yeah.
1: you left something running in Amazon or something.
0: <laughs> Some files you probably don't need anymore all right here we go into our feedback and questions section this week uh the first one uh, from charlie about several questions okay here we go hey guys thanks very much for your podcast very informative one my questions are those first can you explain to me how to install freebsd on rock pro 64 without the emc card
1: um well you just use the sd card in that case right yeah, you flash. Uh, so if if you go to the FreeBSD website, you can get the SD card image and put it on the SD card and just run it directly off there. It'll be slower than the EMMC, uh, but, you know, uh, it's already on there. And then if there's other storage, then you can do an install to the USB stick or something. Like, um, not really related to the ROC64, uh, but I had a... Uh, onion omega which is a little mip device and it only has 16 megabytes of storage in total um and so i basically put the kernel in a very very tiny root file system into that 16 megabytes and then as it came up it would reroute onto a usb stick that had a full file system a full root file system on it um so yeah it depends what you're trying to do but in general you could Probably run directly off the SD card, uh, or you can use a USB stick. Uh, Although I don't know that you can boot from USB, um, but you can probably get away with just something very tiny on the device uh, that then switches over to the USB device or hands off the boot to the USB device.
0: Yeah. If you have a how to or link uh, out there uh, to do this kind of thing, then send it to us at feedback at bsdnow.tv. Then we'll link it up here and everyone. Has uh, the information? Then, can
1: you talk about Illumos distro and all variants? I don't know about all of them. Uh, I don't know that much about Illumos at all. Uh, you know, I talk to Illumos people on occasion, mostly about ZFS and Beehive. Uh, and some nice Illumos people come to my local user group sometimes. Uh, but I don't definitely don't know about all of the variants. Um, then you asked about the MDB modular debugger. So there was the start of a port of that to FreeBSD, but it's not finished by any means.
0: Oh, you're probably used to that one. Yeah. Coming from Inomus. Uh, I've, I've
1: not used it much, but I know that there was a lot of interesting ZFS-specific stuff that MDB could do that was interesting, although a lot of that's been rebuilt now uh, that Matt Ahrens and his team have moved to Linux, uh, and they've built some related tools that it might make... It might be easier to port those tools back to FreeBSD than trying to get all of MDB, although having all of mdb would be great it's just that's a lot of work Mm,
0: yeah maybe it'll be there sometime or in the form of a port uh, but i don't know anything more than that okay thanks for those questions and next up is dan with a kernel driver or module question he writes hello bsd now peoples you keep asking for feedback and questions yes and you listened apparently so great um how does a kernel driver or module get from i wish we had x to x added and why is that dash release? So, he has a hardware platform with a currently unsupported network stack, but there are vendor provided drivers in Linux and a really detailed spec sheet that the system integrator pointed to as being plenty to get moving. I know C, I have the hardware, and I have the spec sheet, but I don't have the wisdom to know how to get from dream to reality. What hurdles are typical to encounter? What sorts of timeframes are reasonable for a hobbyist? Besides our own docs, are there any books you recommend on the subject? Maybe there are some simple Hello World-style driver module tutorials. And if there are other important questions, I'm not asking what
1: might those be. Okay, so uh, for a very simple module, there is a tutorial in the FreeBSD handbook or FreeBSD developer handbook, maybe, Mm -hmm. about writing a module. I've used that before uh, to write a a very simple module, although it's not really uh, the device driver type stuff. Um, Is there a book? Yes. There is a a book by Joseph Kong, I think, about writing... Device Drivers for FreeBSD, Mm -hmm. Uh, so you should be able to find that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, So there's specifically a book about writing device drivers on FreeBSD, and that might be uh, your best bet to get started. I don't know that I can answer the question about timelines per se. Uh, Part of it can also depend on, you know, how different that network device is than some other network devices. You know, specifically because you're after network stack, uh, FreeBSD has a a library called if lib, uh which is basically meant to make writing a network driver easier by providing a lot of the boilerplate already done as a library and so it should just be the basic you know uh no, adding the device ids and to a new driver and doing the device initialization stuff uh, you know that from the spec sheet of how to you know wake the device up uh at boot and so on and uh configure the the queues and and other bits of how it's going to pass data back and forth with the operating system uh, and then iflib uh, takes care of a lot of the, the glue and the work for you
0: yeah that should get you started and uh yeah don't be afraid to ask the developers or from a f- similar driver uh who made changes recently to an, a similar driver you can ask them hey i have the spec sheet here would you be interested in porting that or has at least helped me with uh, getting started okay then, uh, thanks for those questions. And next is uh, James with an Apple M1 question. Okay, here we go. Ah, here. Uh, Lokak, Apple M1. I've been trying for a while, December 2021, to locate someone able to code the driver for the NVME driver in FreeBSD on the M1. I had engaged Scott Long. Yeah, I don't
1: know what needs doing for the NVME driver. Uh, on my, I think it's 2016 era MacBook that I got, um, it was literally just that they, I think, purposely switched to kick two digits of the device ID so it didn't show up as a generic NVMe device. Mm. Mm-hmm. And by just dealing with that, it just worked. But that's an older one that's a plain NVMe. I think the M1 is more exotic uh, yeah. and so probably actually does need a driver. I don't know how much work that would be. But I hear it
0: looks now runs on the M1 so maybe they've figured out the driver issue. Or we could look at that and see if that's portable or something. So yeah, he had engaged Scott Long to write the code in exchange for donation to the FreeBSD Foundation. Then the public issue happened with the other driver quality that almost made it into a 13 release. <clears throat> is there someone else that has the experience to do this change? Certainly. Could we make a call out on the show? Yeah, we can do that. Currently, VMware ESXi is in production for me on M1. I can also loan an M1 Mac. I'd really like to see FreeBSD join Linux, ESXi, and OpenBSD at the M1 party.
1: Ah, uh, Well, certainly if, if OpenBSD has the NVMe driver, that also makes it a bit easier. It's just some reference material that's not encumbered by the GPL.
0: Yeah, cross-BSD pollination and uh, giving code back and forth between the BSDs has been and uh, does happen, definitely. So yeah, if there's someone out there interested in this kind of work, here's the shout out to get in touch and we'll try to connect people together. Okay, that's uh, everything that we have for you this week. And let us know if you have something uh, interesting for us to cover in future episodes at feedback at bstnow.tv or your feedback and questions are always appreciated uh, to fill another episode. Thank you and till next week.